Welcome to Through the Keyhole. I'm your humble host, Jeremy Key. On this episode of The Keyhole, I was given the honor to speak with Miss Noelle Marion, a wife, mother, fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and author of the recently released Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. We discuss what it means to be woke, its origins and potential endpoints, and how the Christian may respond in good faith. It's also worth noting, or maybe not, that she, like myself, is a big Grateful Dead fan, which I think is why we got along so well. If you enjoy this episode, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. Please also consider leaving a review on whatever platform you found the show. It helps us reach a wider audience. You can find me on Twitter at Jeremy A. Key, as well as at The Keyhole, both of those spelled K-E-E. Here's my interview with Noelle Marion. Enjoy the show. Today we are joined with Miss Noelle Mearing. Um, she is the author of a few books uh, that I find really interesting. We're going to be talking today about, uh, primarily about one of them. It is titled Awake Not Woke, um, which is a fairly provocative title, and I think that it's um, an aptly titled book. Uh, before we get started, Noel, I was wondering if you might just want to give just kind of um, a quick introduction of yourself and and maybe what prompted you to write this book, and then we can go from there. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, my name is Noel. As you said, I am a wife and mother of six children living in Southern California. Uh, my background is in philosophy. However, I spent most of my years raising babies um, and in the, over the past five or so years have gotten into um, back into a bit more of the academic world. Uh, I've been writing articles and have written two, co-authored two books called Theology of Home 1 and 2 with different subtitles and then Awake Not Woke Now. Uh, I'm a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in D.C., um, and I think that's about it. Editor for theologyofhome.com. We have a website that corresponds with the books. Um, and I, and I wrote this latest book. I feel, I'm really passionate about this topic, um, mostly because I find that the woke movement is harmful to the very people it aims to help. So actually the, um, there were a couple of things that got me started about writing the articles, um, about woke, wokeism. I've been writing about it for, since, for about two and a half years. Um, and, um, some instances where I saw Christians in particular were getting pulled into a social justice movement that led to uh, a harshness that was, I found to be increasingly merciless. Um, and that seemed really ironic for something that was, you know, supposed to be built around encouraging us to be more loving. Um, but the, the thing that actually set me off to write the book, and I think I've only told this in one other interview, um, but since this is more long form. So I went to an evangelical liberal arts college and I started hearing all these stories about how the students at this, it's sort of an affluent um, Southern California liberal arts evangelical school. They were protesting with a, just super dramatically protesting, like donors would come to the campus. They'd put tape over their mouths saying resist. They held up signs, you know, and, um, and the, and the next, the thing that set them off was that there was a chapel on the school that had been donated in the 1950s when the first president of the college daughter died in a car accident and it depicted Christ with Caucasian skin and they wanted that changed out. 
Um, you know, and in some ways, that's not a bad thing to want changed out. We should have depictions that are reflecting, you know, obviously, you know, the Catholic Church is, is renowned for having depictions of Mary and Christ um, with all sorts of different ethnicities. And I think that is a good thing. But the reaction was so overwhelming, um, so extreme, so disproportionate, I think, from what was going on. And it really made me think about what life was like when I was in college. You know, when I was in college, I was one of the only Catholics at the school. A lot of people, I got made fun of for that. You know, people would surround me and badger me for being Catholic and good fun, but still, you know, it was very easy to feel different. Um, I also wasn't like this OC kind of girl, you know, tanned and, you know, I just, I was just felt different in a lot of ways. Um, And not to compare that to, you know, you know, having the, being oppressed. I'm just saying, my point is that while I was there, everything in my maturation process pointed me to trying to get past those differences to understand that people aren't necessarily against me, that I'm not being made fun of and you know, these interactions that people are goodwilled and to let things roll off my back. And how different it is for the students now, where it really seemed like they were looking for ways in which they can be uh, outraged. You know, all these affluent, you know, white OC students, um, not to dismiss them because of that, but just saying that these are generally not students who have led intense lives of oppression. But they began to see that to, to mimic the elite culture, you had to sort of exude this sense of fighting some sort of political oppression wherever you can find it and that to me was a really fascinating and ultimately I thought detrimental um, a climate to be growing up in and it really made me feel sad for them that they in this time where they could be being formed in intellectual uh, the intellectual life the interior life that instead it was being taken over with politics um, and that seemed really uh, regretful. Yeah and and you say something well I mean you said a lot of interesting things there but you you mentioned that it seemed like they were trying to mimic or or impersonate the the elite class in terms of needing something to to oppose or needing something to to uh, fight against or push back against. And you know that that strikes that strikes my memory uh, of something that Jordan Peterson. Uh, likes to say from time to time and from reading your book I get the impression that you are uh, an admirer of Dr. Peterson as am I and one of the things he's, he likes to point out or, or he points out when on topics like this is he points out that it's it's quite a thing for for uh, particularly uh, kids who are at you know Harvard, Yale, Columbia, any of those any of those top shelf schools it's quite a thing for them to assume the mantle of victimhood uh, because just by virtue of being students where they are, they are, they're guaranteed to, to live, I don't want to say effortless lives, but live lives of, of as close to effortless privilege as one could ever hope to attain. And, 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 you know, it granted, not every university in the world is like Harvard or, or Yale, but that, that attitude of, of looking to be victimized does seem to be um, looking to be victimized or looking to be offended, as you said, uh, does seem to be prevalent when, again, you know, I don't, I don't know the statistics. I'm not a numbers guy very much, not as much as I'd like to be, but you know, there it, it, it's not it's not unreasonable to say that 
just by attending a college anywhere in in the world for that matter any by going to college you're automatically in in the on one of the top shelves of of the human race like most people all told seven seven billion eight billion people in the world going to college is a privilege and so it, the idea of of the idea of being of being a feeling oppressed when at the same time you're 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 on this fast track to to some kind of rarefied success all things considered does seem a little suspicious um and, and you know i you, you write about victimhood culture um you write about victimhood culture in the book and we'll get to that here in a few minutes but i just i thought that that was an interesting observation to make and um certainly worth considering yeah i mean it goes right i think that there's an incentivization to to align yourself as with with a victimhood culture now right i think that for people who find themselves on the side of of the elites or the uh, on the side of you know in, in this reductive kind of worldview, the side of privilege um it's it's almost like a deflection right that you have to you you know, if you're bought into this whole metric that, you know, there's this, these simplistic binaries of oppressor and oppressed, and you find yourself on the side of oppressor, well, then you're going to, the only way you're going to be able to deflect from that is by, you know, doubling down on um, these, this, the same simple binary um, and and on the right, on the correct side. So, you know, I, I think that these students quickly saw that the road to virtue was not through, you know, the traditional means of, the small, unglamorous work of struggling against your sins and your laziness and your ego, your pride and your yeah. addictions or whatever, but rather that there was this sort of new road to virtue, which was aligning with this correct abstraction or this correct um, ideology. Um, and, and that is your way, as much as you can mitigate your privilege, it's by doing that. Yeah. And so there is some motivation there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it's, um, it's, it, it seems like it's, unearned virtue like it like you said it's not you're not struggling for it you're not you're not wrestling you know again to use peterson language you're not going out and fighting the dragon you're you're just kind of looking for a dragon that's been killed and then planting your flag there and saying you know look what look what we've all done um yeah it's 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 a hell of of a phenomenon for sure and and i want to get into all that but before we do that, before we really dive in, I wanted to to share a few thoughts, uh, just a few initial thoughts that I had regarding Awake Not Woke. And I I was struck. I was struck reading your book by two things. One, the first one that I was struck by immediately, and it's because you literally opened the book with this, is how focused on language you, the, the approach that you took toward the book was so focused on on language and the words that we use, um, you know, and we can we can go into that as to why you think that is. Um, but I, you you have a quote here uh, again on page three. You write um, a breakdown in our common understanding of words leads to a society in chaos and frustration, inevitably miscommunicating and plagued by distrust. We become suspicious not only of each other but of ourselves in our ability to grasp reality. Rather than a fallible people struggling imperfectly toward a harmonious common good, 
we are a cacophony screaming across a chasm for recognition in moving through the world without a destination. And one, I love the imagery of that, of a cacophony screaming across a chasm. That's excellent alliteration. Um, but like I say, there, there's this recurring theme throughout the book that the words we use matter. Um, is that something that you were conscious of while you were writing or is that something that just like came, came out in the process? Tell me about that. You know, I, in some ways, I feel like I backed into this, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about in the dogmas, but this idea that this is fundamentally against the logos, just in trying to distill and understand this movement, it really became clear to me at some point, wow, this really is targeted at the logos. Mm -hmm. And language kind of fl flowed from that, obviously, because language is, you know, the way that we manifest the logos amongst each other. Um, talking about Jordan Peterson, he talks about how the word dialogue, you know, is dual logos, that the reason why it's so important to dialogue is because we can't just sit with our own thoughts and expect them to be well-formed. You know, we have to actually be in, in, in the moment challenged by each other yeah. and sharpening each other and having to recalibrate. Um, this is how we, we struggle and, you know, in our clumsy and, and, and um, small ways, try to arrive at the truth in our lives, the truth, not just out there, but the truth about ourselves. Um, and that breakdown, which is, you know, pretty explicit in the postmodernists, they were, you know, that the idea that language is not a means towards arriving at any sort of truth, but just a means to dominate each other. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that is the way that this, this movement is most clearly and immediately manifest is in the, the breakdown in language, right? That words have taken on all sorts of different meanings. They're manipulated. We're slow. We're, we're constantly fighting each other with slogans, you know, that words have become sort of this weapon, or even like with the transgender movement with pronouns, the idea that if someone doesn't acknowledge your pronoun, that they are questioning your very existence. This is the language we use now. It's really cuts to the heart of the human person. Um, and I think it's connected to the way in which if we can define who we are out just, just in denial of even bodily reality, but just with a word that we choose, well, then someone can extinguish who we are with the words that they choose or use. Um, and so words become both like malleable and also a bludgeon that we can use to hurt each other. And, you know, the, it really makes us unable to have any sort of um, connection with one another. It's a total rupture of human beings, one from the other and also a person from himself or herself. Um, and ultimately ourselves from God. So it just seemed like the thread that was woven throughout what was happening here had to do with the word and words in general. Yeah, yeah. And you you mentioned how we use, uh, there's a lot of sloganeering that goes on these days. Um, I swear this is not just a podcast to promote Jordan Peterson, but um, <laughs> I was listening to a recent interview of his. I can't remember who it was with. Maybe it was with um, I can't remember who, but it was a, it was a very fascinating interview and they were talking about um, this use of language and uh, Dr. Pearson pointed out that, and, and I, I haven't fact checked this, but I, I trust, I trust enough of what he said to, to believe him here that the, that the original use of the word slogan, like the, the etymology of slogan is something, it translates to something like the cry of the dead or the battle cry of the dead. And it's, it's this idea of, of, of something you say when, when you're up against the wall and there's just not a whole lot 
left, like there are no arrows left in the quiver. So all you can really do is throw the bow kind of thing. Um, wow. and yeah, there, there, there seems to be a lot of that going on. There seems to be a lot of uh, redefinition of, you know, redefinition of marriage to begin with that, you know, that's kind of like the, the headline example, but uh, what was the word? It was a couple of months ago, maybe three months ago, there was, I think it was in the Supreme court or it was, it was something in Washington and they were, they had just happened to suddenly some, some governing body just happened to suddenly redefine the meaning of like, I think maybe sexual harassment or so I can't remember what it was, but they just, they up and re redefined the word. They said, well, this now means this. And everyone just sort of took to it like, okay, so that's how we use this word now. And it shouldn't be that way, right? Like it shouldn't be that easy to just say, well, now, now this means this. And so get on board with it. Um, words have meaning. Yeah. It just seems like a means, means of control. I mean, it feels very irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, words have meaning, they have power, they have, yeah, they have meaning, they have weight, they have purpose. And, and we seem to just in the rush to, um, in the rush to make the world how we want it to be rather than how it is, we seem to be under the impression that we can just, just make words like kids today, you know, they don't even use words. They use like, yeah, things are fire right now. Things are 100 and all this. And it's like, there's a certain amount of that in youth, but there is also just that sort of thing seems to be going on where we just make up our own language. We make up our own realities and just expect everyone to go along with it. And how does, how does one create a, an identity when their identity is constantly um, shifting? You know, it's, it's, it's perplexing. Um, so the other thing, just real fast, the other observation I wanted to make about this book, and then we're gonna we're gonna jump in to it uh, with both feet, is I wrote in the margins in this book several times. I wrote um, something to the effect of Noel Maring pulls no punches um, because this book is very uh, it's very direct and it's very honest and it's very um, at times humorous. Like you use some really use some examples that I thought were, and I can't remember any off the top of my head, but there were several times where I just wrote like, ha, in the margin, because it's like, how is this happening in the real world? How is this happening? And no one's like batting an eyelash at it. Um, and I wish I had some of those examples, but I don't, but I know that they're there. So the first real question I want to ask you is how did we get to this point? How did we get to the point where reality becomes such, as you said, such a malleable thing? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that there, I go through the history in the book yeah. of, you know, I think this was very premeditated and we can talk about that. Um, but I think, I think that the way that we have gone along with it is because we have stopped seeing the great importance and meaning, you know, in some ways behind having a cultural meaning. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think that in, in, in oft, oftentimes it was because it seemed like maybe we would be strident or um, sticklers for language um, or not, you know, afraid of not being on board with a 
the the latest progressive incarnation of compassion. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that sort of intimidation is understandable because there are, you know, you know, like the, for example, the very banal anodyne phrase that people say all the time is better to be kind than right. Um, you know, I kind of hate that phrase because I feel like it's, it's a substitute for really thinking. Yeah. <laughs> However, you know, and I think I even talked about this in the book, there are, there are certain times, you know, the Christian is not meant to be a scold who's just going around wagging his or her finger around at everyone and, and correcting everything that's wrong. Um, and I think that the, the media in particular did such an effective job in portraying that stereotype of, of Christianity, you know, from the, everything from the church lady and Saturday Night Live to, you know, countless characters and movies and, and television shows. I really think that that had a huge effect in our imaginations that we realized at some level, okay, it's a, you're, you're the bad guy if you're, you know, you, you hold to a certain moral norm or you're, you know, um, this doesn't look it doesn't, it's not a good look, you know, and it's not ultimately compassion. It's not actually ultimately going to win people over or, you know, convert people to Christianity. And I think we were so, so eager to avoid that pitfall that we, we missed the huge abyss that we were walking into um, because we let so much go, you know, in that, in that process for so many years. Um, And so, you know, it's a big question. And I do think that it's been it's been a top-down effort in most ways from the academy to institution, various institutions, to media, to popular culture. Um, but I do think that for, if we're going to self-reflect as well, you know, that there is a way in which I think that we didn't fully understand what was happening and, and kowtowed to all of the, the tactics of, um, of getting this uh, widespread. So yeah. Um, yeah, now, and now it's, I think people are seeing now it's, it's escalated quickly and now it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. And are you, how familiar are you with Alexander Solzhenitsyn? I love him. Love him. I mean, I've read everything he's written, written, but, um, you know, I love the Harvard speech. I read uh, big excerpts of the Gulag Archipelago and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I love the Harvard speech. Yeah. That was, that was what hooked me on Solzhenitsyn. That like, that was the first thing I ever read by him. And I remember, it wasn't like, oh, what's this guy driving at? It, it hit me at the end of the first paragraph, and I have these words chiseled onto my soul, and I think that they're germane here. He ends, as you know, he ends that first paragraph with basically a warning to everyone who's in, in attendance, which I don't know if you've ever looked at the list of the people who graduated from Harvard in 1978, no. but there were some pretty impressive names who probably were in attendance for that address um which given the nature of it i think is is good and fitting yeah but um but he he opens the address uh by pointing out that that the the motto for harvard university is veritas which in latin means truth and then he immediately goes into the best the best just like shot across the bow i think in the past hundred years he says the truth is seldom pleasant it's almost invariably bitter know that i come to you today not as an enemy but as a friend Mm -hmm. and then he completely you know tears apart the the western the the modern western liberal uh process um but what got me about Solzhenitsyn, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this, what got me about Solzhenitsyn was the way that he managed to, to speak so 
honestly and so fearlessly. And granted, a lot of that comes from his time in the Gulag and standing up to the Soviet Union, but he speaks so effortlessly, courageously, and he incorporates his faith as an Orthodox. I believe he was Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, I can't remember which, but he incorporates his faith so seamlessly without being heavy-handed with it. You know, he doesn't, it, it, the, the modern idea of, of sharing one's faith is, is something akin to, well, you know, in the Bible, it says this and this and this, but he takes the principles of his faith and, and shows how they can be used in a practical setting. Um, and it's very effective. You know, it's, it, I think it's very effective between the Harvard address uh, the Templeton Address, um, there are a few others, but he's very, he's, I, I don't even know how to describe him, even after all this time, but what are your, what are your thoughts on maybe like that approach of just being yeah. honest and fearless, but not, not in a, like you say, not in a scold kind of way? Yeah, I think this is such an important, that's such an important question, um, and, and I think the reason why he's so effective is it becomes from this rich, deep, uh, incomparably deep almost um, interior life that he must have had at that point that was well earned from human suffering, right? Um, And and that gave him an intense amount of interior freedom that led to like a wholeness of the human person. So for example, one of the things I'm always, you know, encouraging people to have clarity and to have courage. Mm -hmm. But one one of the pitfalls of that is that you know, sometimes the loudest people are the people who are le- you least want to be your spokesman. <laughs> because oftentimes, the more we are trying to really understand these things and really and really also struggle with our own sins, right? Which is where any sort of authority that we have to speak on any matter yeah. has to start with, you know, a, a integrity that we are, you know, fighting to live the same principles in our own interior life and in our private lives that right. we are espousing. Um, and oftentimes that struggle makes us more humble and it makes us almost less, uh, it can make us more hesitant because we see so much complexity. There's moral complex, you know, and we see the, you know, mercy that everyone needs and how, you know, there's no cartoon in this world. There's human persons who are suffering and really struggling and, you know, and these yeah. things can be hard to talk about. Um, and then sometimes when we're less interiorly in that rich place, it, it's easier to be a clanging symbol, you know, and just blather on. Um, and yeah. so, the, you know, that is the trick is that the person, the, the way to be um, speaking with that sort of unabashed courage and, and, but also that way, the winsome kind of effect mm-hmm. that he had is really comes from this interior depth that he had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and there's no shortcut to that. Yeah. That's what's hard. You can't perform it, you yeah. know, you can't perform it. And that's what makes all of this incredibly complicated and tricky is that, um, you know, I think we're espousing, you know, the, these are the highest and best ideals possible, right? Christ represents the very best, um, supernaturally and naturally, all the human virtues, all the supernatural virtues. Um, and that, uh, it's, that's a, that's a tall order, you know, <laughs> it's a tall order to preach that when we are so small and fallible and, and, and weak and people are so eager to find hypocrites, you know, and that, and, and that's the other thing. I think we've all, I mean, talk about the, the media, the paradigm of the, you know, the, the, who is bad and who is good and this church lady and all these things. Yeah. Um, 
the, the, the worst thing that people, the worst image in the world now is the person who um, puts himself up above others or, you know, yeah. be that. And, and for a good reason, because there is something very distasteful about someone who does that when it's not warranted and it's, it's obnoxious and it's self-aggrandizing and, you know, um, but I think we also have to not be so afraid of that, um, that we crawl into a little shell or become into a little insular bubble, right? Like these things are things that matter deeply and um, the Holy Spirit can work through us and uh, make our meager efforts better than what we can make of them on, on our own. And, 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 um, and silence is sort of not an option anymore either because people, there's a real human harm. Um, and that's the, was my driving motivation for the book. It's not because I want to own the libs or anything like that. I just truly thought these are, there are people being harmed deeply by this ideology for yeah. generations. There's a generational harm that's going to happen here. And it's, it spreads like a virus. Um, and that seemed like something that we can't not speak on or speak of, speak about. Right. Yeah. It, it's, and, and the idea that it's, it's generational. Um, I think that, that at least my, my thought on that is that it kind of moves forwards and backwards. Like what we're doing now is obviously going to have a ripple effect for, you know, your children, my children, their children after that, if we don't find a way to, at the very least, balance what what is happening with cancel culture and what is happening with with just the um, the what seems to be the the unhindered uh, movement of you know like Ireland getting so excited, this Catholic country getting so excited with um, passing abortion laws that make it so easy and like. If we don't, if we don't see what we're doing now, when we're drunk right now, the world is drunk right now. And if we don't sober up quick, I think we're going to find that the the car is wrapped around the tree. And yeah. at that point, it's going to be like, well, it's totaled. What do we do now? Um, but I also think it goes, I, I think that, I think that the generational comment is a good one. And this kind of leads into my next question and my next point about your book that I found so fascinating was it's billed as an intellectual, in part, an intellectual history of woke ideology. And I thought to myself, how can that be if if woke is such a relatively new thing? But you actually go back quite a ways to something called the Frankfurt School and and I had, I had heard about that just in my own extracurricular readings, but I didn't really know much about it. Um, so I wonder if you could maybe just give a brief, if that's even possible, just give a brief history of what the Frankfurt School was, who were some of the big players, and what were some of their ideas um, before we move into how those ideas now connect to the present. Sure. Okay, so the Frankfurt School was it began in Frankfurt, Germany, and came to Columbia in 1935. And it was a group of Marxists who were disappointed because the revolution had not come to be um, in Germany. Marx had believed that it was inevitable that the proletariat would just rise up and topple the ruling class, um, eventually coming to this sort of utopian state. That did not come to pass, and so they want they formed this institute to try to examine why. Um, and following along with Antonio Gramsci, they came to determine that it's not just econ economics that um, need to be addressed. It's actually that the, the, po the power structures in society are far more pervasive, uh, encompassing law, popular culture, news, um, the uh, schools. 
um, and that the, the, the real uh, revolution would come only by subverting all the, the halls of power, all those institutions, um, ultimately cr- by criticizing and, and rejecting all that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, th- so, they, so they formed and came to Columbia, and then what they came up with was what we now call critical theory, or they began to call critical theory. Critical theory is a fusion of a, this sort of neo-Marxism that keeps the oppressor oppressed classes, but broadens it into all these other categories, eventually including sexuality, gender, um, race. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a fusion of neo-Marxism and also neo-Freudianism. So many of these Marxists were really taken up by um, the thought of Freud. Um, and so the, the neo-Freudianism kind of encompasses, encompasses this idea that there is um, that human beings are polymorphously perverse, and that part of our liberation is not just by uh, fighting the oppression outside of ourselves, but fighting the oppression inside of ourselves in the form of our own sexual repression. And then that's a sort of toppling of our of any moral structure or moral norms is another way that we combat the hegemonic forces that dominate society. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the figures were, yeah. Go ahead. So that, you know, Horkheimer, Adorno, um, I, I would say the biggest celebrity Frankfurt School guy was Mar- Herbert Marcuse, who was a big figure in the 60s. He had a huge influence. He wrote a pivotal essay called Rep- Repressive Tolerance. He also wrote One Dimensional Man. He was a mentor um, for, you know, the weather, the weatherman, weather, mm-hmm. who, who became to be known as the Weather Underground, um, Angela Davis. Um, you know, actually a lot of the revolutionaries in the sixties who then be- went on to run like the teachers colleges in the United States. <laughs> um, so yeah, their influence was, uh, broad and, and, and still with us today. Do you think that that makes me wonder because I, I, it's fun to think about conspiracy theories, but it's, it's, you need to be cautious, I suppose, and, and not letting them get out of hand. Do you think that the Frankfurt school the people that you just mentioned, do you think that they had this this long game in mind? Like, do you think that the things that they were discussing, the critical theory, all the things that they were kind of figuring out how they wanted to turn over on their on their heads, do you think that they had in mind that this would be a multi generational, perhaps even multi century um, endeavor, or do you think that do you think that they maybe didn't give it that much thought that maybe these ideas would live and die with them? What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, according to their writing, they very much thought that this would be a generational revolution that would go underground and and be subversive, but eventually would topple the West. I mean, they were quite explicit about that. Um, and that's where you get the, it wasn't, it's attributed to Gramsci, but it's actually, I think, an interpreter of his that came up with the phrase, a long march through the institutions. Yeah. Just that this would take a long time, and but it would be a bloodless, in some ways, revolution. I mean, actually, that's there have been there are human casualties in the form of abortion and also human mutilation in the transgender movement. But um, but it is a cultural revolution that they they very much explicitly understood to be a long game right. that would eventually affect the West and weaken by weakening us, weakening the family first and foremost, um, and then the churches and the society at large. That's, that's kind of incredible. It, mm-hmm. It's kind of incredible. And while I don't, I don't like uh, what I've read about the Frankfurt School, you have to at least respect their, their longevity of thought. Um, because 
I mean, that's that's impressive for them to for them to have the kind of I mean like today it's you know if if an idea can can last an entire presidential administration we call it a well thought out idea and here are these people who um here are these people who are thinking you know generations ahead of their ahead of their time but that that's where my admiration i guess for that stops um I'm just looking over my notes here because there's so much, there's so much in that. There's so much to go over, and there's there's so much that I want to hit on. Um, so much to do, so little time. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll move on to the other stuff that I was hoping to get to, um, rather than fall down too many rabbit holes at once. So, in your book, you you lay out these three dogmas. Uh, these three dogmas of of wokeism, I guess we can call them, and you say that they are group over person, um, will over reason, and there's a third one, power over authority. Um, and I wonder if you can maybe just walk us through those three, and I'll I'll jump in with a few questions I have here and there. But let's start with group over person. What is that about? Sure. So the the idea is that the, the the that we you know I mean obviously the Marxist framework of pitting group against group is crucial to the success of the movement. You know it's it's divide and conquer. Um, but the interesting to me thing to me about it that or one of the interesting parts about it is that it really becomes clear that it's not really the individuals of the group that are meant to flourish. So for example, I use this example and I think in that chapter. In, the, in 2017, when there was the Women's March, there was a group of pro-life feminists who wanted to march alongside them. And they were told by the Women's March they could have no official affiliation, yeah. even though they agreed with everything that the march stood for, except for abortion. Yeah. But because they didn't, because the way they have redefined the human person as being first and foremost defined by oppression means that if you are not fighting the ultimate symbol of your oppression, which is your pregnancy, then you are somehow falling short. You're not a fully, fully living your womanhood um, as if womanhood is defined by oppression. So in other words, it's not these individual women that they want to flourish. It's the ideology that needs to flourish. And the same thing, if you're a conservative black man, you'll be said, told that you're racially black, but not politically black um, because you're not furthering the ideology. So it's really all about the ideology rather than the individual um, the individual becomes reduced to like a, to- a totem of a movement or, you know, an instantiation of the movement um, rather than, a, you know, in a healthy society, the group and the person are harmonious. You see that most explicitly in the family, um, where the good of the individual is the good of the group, um, you know, it, it, but this really pits individual against group in a way that only one can succeed. And, and for the ideology, it's going to be the group think. Yeah, and, and that that politically black versus racially black that that and and the women's march for that matter it it strikes me as just it goes back to what i was saying at the beginning like how 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 is it possible to hold up these these um these ideas these beliefs you know it the olympics just started so I, i feel good using this like what kind of mental gymnastics do you have to do to to be able to say oh well you're you're just racially black you're not politically black and and the other side of that is what does it mean to be politically black 
or what does it mean? I guess you could say, what does it mean to be politically female? Since, as you say, it's not enough to be a woman to participate in the Women's March. You have to be a woman who shares in the ideology. And you even write, um, you even write, sharing in group membership is necessary but not sufficient. You must share in the ideology itself. It, it's it's not enough to be. You're black, and that's great. You're a woman, and that's great. But that's not enough. You have to you have to believe what we tell you to believe. Otherwise, you know, like you say, you're 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 still you know part of that oppression. And it's just it. I I just and, and so this is this is good because this is where I wanted to talk about the honor culture, the dignity culture, the victim culture. Um, you know, you use the example of the Wild West as the honor culture. And you write that reputation is highly valued, people avoid fear, uh, appearing cowardly, and there's usually an appeal to some sort of authority in, in when there's uh, a problem that needs to be arbitrated. Um, obviously, we don't have a lot of duels going on anymore, so I think that we've probably moved away from honor to the next one, which is dignity culture. And for dignity culture, right, recognition of inherent worth of each person is prioritized, tends to be law-based. That sounds good enough. I think the dignity culture is probably fine. But then we get to victim culture. And you write that, you write that it, it looks like we are moving from dignity to victim culture. And we talked about this at the beginning, how, how it seems like the way this these woke ideas spread is through people who is through yeah people who are are trying to earn some sort of virtue trying to trying to appear virtuous at the very least and and it should be said that behind wokeism i think that there are good intentions i think that they're just maybe not as well conceived as they could be. And I'd like to get to that point here in a few minutes. But you write victim victim status. I know I'm just reading from your book, but there's you just word everything so well here that I don't want to step on it. Victim status bestow, bestows moral status on a person. How can that be? How, and, and this is my question, how can being a victim bestow bestow a moral status on a person? What is the what is the the mindset behind that? Well, I mean, I think that we almost, we're so embedded in it that it's almost hard to see how it's not that, you know, I mean, if, if you're in a conversation with someone and they talk about how um, they've been harmed in a certain way, I mean, there, there's an immediate credence and gravitas that's given to their words. And in some ways that's appropriate, right? Um, the problem is, is that if we have created moral stature or status as bestowed by finding yourself as a victim, it creates this perverse incentive to scan for ways in which you are injured, whether or not that there are ways, things that would you would necessarily by nature want to marinate on or you would get over naturally, right? It kind of encourages us to sit in that place of being hurt or harmed or um, and, to, and to look for those opportunities where you might be further harmed. So I say in the book somewhere, it creates this, that we have this supply and demand problem mm. where the supply of, you know, people are more, far more tolerant. You know, I come from a mixed race um, family, my father and mother. Um, 
And, and for them, and, and, I, and people get, someone got angry at me at one point because I said something about how we've made great progress. And they said, what, what's the evidence of the progress? And it's like, well, look at mixed race uh, cup marriages. That, that's rightly so far more embraced than it would have been 50 years ago. And, and she got really mad and said, um, I don't remember why. She thought that I was uh, dismissing, um, you know, I, I wasn't, I was just trying to state what I think is a clear fact. I mean, my parents 50 years ago would have had a far harder time in many parts of the country than they would today. Um, and, and that just seems undeniable to me. So the supply of, of, um, of, of victimization in those certain ways have gone, in some ways have gone down for, for, for women and for um, and racial minorities and for, and for different sexualities. Um, women have other problems now, you know, obviously with the Me Too movement, and that's a whole other conversation we can have. Um, but the demand to find um, ways in which we are victimized has gone way up. And so it's this, it creates this desire for microaggressions, right? I think this is kind of partially where microaggressions come from. I think there's a couple of provenances, but um, this desire that as the supply has gone, gone down so much and as our demand has increased, we need to find instances in which we're victimized where they where normally I don't think we would see them. That's a really psychologically unhealthy place to be in, right? I mean, I'm sure that you, I've known people who are, are, you know, you can use your injuries like a, like a trophy, right? Where it shields you from, um, from having to take responsibility of your life or, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I know this psych- psychology intimately in, in, in my own life with um, people I know. And it's really, um, it really is so, it's such a, it's, it's such a hard way to, to move through life. You know, you only really hold yourself back and hurt yourself where well, we're creating that sort of psychological um, uh, instinct, or I'm not using the right language. Obviously I'm not, I'm not a professional in this and <laughs> as you are, um, but we're creating that incentive that is extremely unhealthy um, through this sort of victim culture. And it's yeah. on a collision course with a dignity culture. So we grew up with that phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's sort of, sort of you know, it's obviously a little trite childhood thing, but I remember saying that all the time when I was little, we're, we've gone way past that now. Words can actually eradicate me now. <laughs> oh yeah, words, words are, uh, wor- interestingly, both words and silence, they're both now violence. My, yeah. my words. Like- my words can be used as, as a form of violence, but also paradoxically, when I don't use my words, it's also violent. Yeah. The only, uh, the only option left then is to say it's compelled approved speech. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, you can't and, be silent and you can't dissent. So the only thing you can do is use your voice to support the ideology. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that just goes back to the whole idea that, that, that it's, that language plays such an important part because, you know, particularly last year with all the George Floyd stuff, there were a lot of a lot of voices were saying that that it's time for white people to basically shut up and listen. Okay, so let's let's stop talking and start listening. But then there were also people saying, but you'll never understand my experience. Okay, so if I'm listening, what am I listening for if I can't understand what it is I'm hearing? And so it's, it's just, it's this, it's this very tense. Yeah. It's a very narrow straight navigate because I can't. It's a wall. Yeah. It's like, I can't listen, but I can't speak either. And so like, what what are other options are there? Like it's, 
and that was very deliberate. I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw writes about that, that you no longer say I am a man or a woman who is black. You say I am a black woman because your blackness, the part of your identity that is oppressed is far more important, important than the part of your identity that is universal with other human beings. Um, so it's by design to have that sort of wall erected. Yeah. And it's, and, and the, the, the imagery of a wall, I think, is very interesting, and I think it's a good analogy, because we live in a time where everyone's talking about, like, tearing down the walls and, you know, celebrating people's differences and all these things, when at the same time, we're, we seem to be falling over ourselves to wall ourselves off by, by, by picking exactly what our identity is and expecting everyone to identify us in that same way it seems almost like it's it seems like we're 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 wanting to run a marathon but we're also burying our feet in cement it like it, it just it again i as i'm speaking to you i'm just trying to work all this stuff out because however much i experience it and read about it i just i can't wrap my mind around it yeah and well, you're touching, you're touching on, you're touching on something, which is, I think is fascinating for the same way that we're, we're starting to segregate kids according to race, not only in school, but in dorms, some liberal progressive colleges are trying to have black dorms and white dorms at yeah. this. What have we been doing for the past 10 years? We've been desegregating them according to gender. So you're, you know, you're touching on some sort of incoherence, whereas, you know, with the genders that male and female actually imply some sort of difference in behavior, right? Yeah. That sh they should be segregated by gender because it's more appropriate showers, bathrooms, change, you know, all propriety generally. Yeah. Whereas the races, there's no reason to segregate people by gender according to race. There's no difference in behavior. You don't treat each other differently. There's no propriety issue. Yeah. Um, but but in, in making and in treating those two categories differently, you create broader categories of enemies across across humanity um, because men and women being eradicating the difference between men and women creates Harvey Weinstein it creates you know it, it creates the Me Too movement it creates the meaninglessness of of the female body who is which is inherently more vulnerable than the male body and that implies some reverence owed from the male towards the female um, because she is more vulnerable and because she can bear life um, that there's a way in which a man needs to be manly and protective over that yeah. And you eradicate that, all of a sudden you have perpetrated, you know, um, predators, right? You have women who are vulnerable and are, don't know how to put a finger on how the, the way that they're being harmed and, you know, all these things, this whole host of pathologies that come from that. Um, so, yeah, but uh, with the races, we're doing the exact opposite. We're saying we're actually going to, we're doing the exact opposite of what Martin Luther King Jr. would have said, right? Which is to focus on a universal brotherhood and sisterhood of men and women. Um, instead, we're going to focus on our division racially. Yeah. And, and yeah, and MLK Jr., he's he's an interest. I mean, he's always an interesting figure, but he's particularly interesting lately because, and I think you maybe point this out uh, in the book, you, you reference uh, his letter from Birmingham jail. And, you know, I, he, he dreamed of a world where people were judged not by the color of their skin, but by the, by the, I can't remember the exact quote. Content of the character. Content of their heart. Yeah, there you go. And um, and he was all about equality, you know, equality, and that's great. But now, equality isn't enough. And if you if you advocate for equality, somehow that makes you racist because you're not going all the way to equity. And, right. and it's just it's this it's this moving of the goalposts. It's this redefinition of, you know, I mean, you could use any analogy: moving goalposts, slippery slope, redefining language. But it's 
it's this idea that that if we if we just get to a point we'll be like we've reached our destination we've reached equality but as we start approaching equality oh now we're pushing the finish line just a little bit further back and it's equity and you know equality of outcomes rather than equality of opportunity and all these sorts of things and it's it's just like where does it end yeah good luck with that good luck with trying to get equity of outcome you know (laughs) it takes immense amount of tyranny in order to get anywhere close to that yeah exactly but but you know it you you can't point that out because tyrants are only reserved for tyranny is only reserved for a certain a certain class of people and you can't associate tyranny with with something like anti-racism because how could you do that but like it's when you dig into these words and when you dig into into the ideas underlying all of this it's again it, it all comes back to language how could someone oppose how could someone oppose blm black lives matter for instance but then you look at their website of course this was long since redacted um but you look at their website around this time last year and you know they talked about how blm stood for like the abolition abolition of the, the nuclear family something to that effect um yeah. and of course like i said they they removed that because they received black like what does that have to do with black lives mattering and and why do i have to why do i have to agree with all these things in order to say Black lives matter because, of course, all lives matter. So why should I also have to say? And also, while we're at it, get rid of the family. Like let's queer the culture. Yeah, like Like that gets into the second dogma of the book, which is that because oppression by other groups is intimately tied to sexual repression that we impose on ourselves. So queering the culture is essential part of racial and racial justice as well. They're all intimately tied together in the minds in this mind the minds of the woke. Yeah, and and what so. What exactly do you mean by clearing the culture? So the, the so the second dogma of the in the book that identifies um, will over reason or nature, um, and that is, is rooted in the neo Freudianism that we we're talking about with the Frankfurt School. And the idea is that our oppression is not just outside of ourselves but inside of ourselves, and that our liberation comes from identifying the the sexual desires that we have that are most non conforming to the culture cultural mores and then expressing and living them out. And that's how we become truly liberated. And the weirder those desires are, the greater possibility we have for liberation. This is why pride parades tend to be, you know, competitions and the most outlandish presentation of self. And why children's movies, I talk about this in the book too, are constantly hammering this message of, you know, fly your freak flag, embrace your nonconformity, you know, be you and you know, there's a there's an anodyne and innocuous way that you can interpret that message where, you know, if you have a, a weird nose or, you know, you have a you're unusually short or you have a, a funny mole, you know, you should. Um, yeah, that's great. Embrace it. You know, yeah. <laughs> no a quirky sense of humor. But the, this message is so pervade. It's over and over again. It, it's just really obvious that this is about fr- fly, the flying your freak flag is about more than that. It's about actually bucking the the mores of your society triumphing over them liberating yourself and what this may be a bigger question than we have time for but why why do we why why is it so important that we throw the baby out with the bathwater? like not there are a lot of good things in our traditions in our past 
that have stood the test of time because of their goodness, because of the inherent beauty, the, the inherent truth of them. Why, why is it so important that we just completely get rid of all that? Because, because like the, the, the pride phrase is a good example, um, because you say they do tend to be very uh, colorful and very um, creative. And again, slippery slope, because like what happens when, when it just turns into a competition of who can, who can out, outlandish the other person? Like where, where do we go? I just, it, you can tell, I'm sure, that I'm perplexed by all of this because it just, I, I can't square it with rationality. Um, well, I think that they don't want to hold, they do want to throw the baby out of the bathwater because that's the point of revolution, really, is to undermine and uh, and undermine utterly Western civilization. I mean, it sounds so conspiratorial, maybe it sounds crazy to say it, but th- this is all throughout the literature. You know, yeah. they were quite explicit about this being the aim. Um, so that doesn't mean that your neighbor down the street or your friend who marched in a parade has this in mind. They might, he or she probably does not want to destroy the culture, doesn't think that that's what they're participating in. But this is the, this is the animating uh, revolutionary um, trajectory mm-hmm. um, is, is, is that it is that revolutionary ultimately. Wow. You know, there's a, there's an example, there's a, there's a, a, a parable I guess you could call it and I can't remember what it's called but basically there's a pigeon and this pigeon is flying and he's flapping his wings and he's gaining altitude and the pigeon thinks the the air around me is holding me down if only the air wasn't here I would be able to soar that much higher not realizing that it's it's the airflow and it's it's all the 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 gravitational forces and and all that sort of thing that is actually allowing the pigeon to fly. And it seems like we're doing that very same thing. It seems like we're saying, it seems like we're saying, um, if only we didn't have all of these foundations beneath us, we would really be able to build something special. So let's get rid of all these foundations. Well, good luck building any kind of structure without a foundation. Yeah. Like the first and I think we take for granted how much we benefit from that foundation that we yeah. want to ruin. You know, I mean, yeah. look at the, the look at the world before the Pax Constantiana or before the, you know Constantine, you know, Christianized the society. Yeah. It was slavery, prostitution, you know, killing, um, you know, killing of the innocents. I, it was a brutal. It's a brutal world. Yeah. Christianity rev- was it was a revolutionary idea that human beings have inherent dignity and worth. Yeah. You know. So, well, well, good luck to us when we undermine all of that utterly. <laughs> and, and, and that, you know, that calls to mind something that Bishop Barron uh, said, and maybe this is a good transition because I, I want to be conscious of time, but Bishop, Bar- Bishop Robert Barron of Word on Fire Institute, um, he likes to use the example when he's talking about, about like moral relativity and all these sorts of things. He likes to use the example of, learning to play an instrument like the piano the guitar learning to play a sport like golf um you know you can sit down at the piano and you can just bang around on the keys and maybe eventually you'll get to beethoven maybe but more than likely you're just going to be making noise what is it that allows 
Beethoven to be Beethoven or Bach to be Bach. It's not their freedom to just do whatever they want. It's their free, it's their understanding of the limits and, and how an instrument is played. And then with that understanding, effectively and efficiently operating within it. You know, Tiger yes. Woods didn't learn to be Tiger Woods by going out and just swinging at a golf ball. He had to learn how to stand and how to hold the club, how to swing it back. There was a lot of, there were a lot of, of, of boundaries and limits and rules and things that he had to follow to become Tiger Woods. And, yeah. and he's not going to say like, oh man, if, if I didn't, if I didn't spend all that time as a kid learning to play golf, I could have been really something special. It's like, no, that, <laughs> was, that was what made him Tiger Woods. Um, but we, we seem to just think that we, there, there seems to be this idea that, that the rules, the structure, the foundations, whatever you want to call them, that they're holding us back, that they're holding us down. And granted, human history, um, does have some very dark periods and we've certainly made a lot of mistakes and you know human history it we're we're in the process of correcting them but let's not overcorrect right yeah i think that's absolutely right yeah so like i said i want to be conscious of time but i brought up the fact that you and you brought this up as well that you've written a couple of books and i think that i think that is interesting i think that this collection of books that you're building um, for yourself is interesting because you know you could you could say that awake not woke. Oh, uh, we're frozen. Am I frozen? How about now? Still frozen? How about now? Okay, Ready? I got you back. Okay. Yeah. Um, naturally, today is the day that the internet goes crazy. Um, so you've written you've written awake not woke, and that's a pretty it's a very generous book and it's a very well written book but obviously if you are of a woke persuasion you're probably going to find it as a fairly combative book which i think is good i think it's good to be um to be oppositional as long as you're respectful and you're not just throwing stuff out there so you i think you've done that well but what strikes me as interesting is that before that you wrote theology of home you wrote both both volumes of theology at home, and that's you know that's something that you're still involved in. And it struck me as interesting this this dichotomy of theology of home, which is this very charming book, this very um, I can think of no other word than just to call it delightful. I I, I love reading theology from home. It was I, it was the book I read in the evenings to come down from the day because it was just it was a it was a warm and, like I said, charming and welcoming book. Um, and so you take that and then you combine it with Awake Not Woke. And it reminds me of a, of a Chesterton quote, and I'm, I'm not going to get it completely right. But Chesterton wrote somewhere that the, sol the good soldier doesn't fight because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. Yeah. And it just strikes me as interesting because it seems like it seems like theology of home. You wrote it with Carrie Grease, um, who I would also like to talk to. And yeah. yeah, and it seems like you wrote it for 
for a love of the good things, like the transcendentals, what's good, what's beautiful, what's true. It seems like you and your personal life have gone to great care to embody those and to really make the home um, not just a welcoming place, not just a comfortable place, but a, a life-giving place. So maybe just tell, tell me a little bit about why you wrote Theology of Home. What motivated that? Because that's an interesting, an interesting book. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. I'm, I love hearing the way you described it. I thought that was wonderful. Um, so Carrie Grass, my co-author, she, we, she and I have been friends. We met in grad school 20 some years ago. And she came up with the phrase theology of home. And so we, we embarked on this maybe three years ago initially, and it's been ongoing ever since. We just wrapped up our third book, actually. Um, but I think the idea was that she and I both write against, you know, sort of all these isms, you know, feminism and wokeism and, you know, all these ideologies. Um, but just as you said, there's also something that they've been destroying that we care deeply about. And the, and the way they've been destroying it oftentimes is through just the, through creating this imagery, you know, in movies and TV shows and the oppressive, dark family life and for the woman in particular and, um, and the, the, you know, the, the banality of middle-class values or, you know, the, the work of the husband works and you have, you know, this, this old traditional way of living, um, how simple and rather stupid it was for maybe for the rubes or for the you know people who weren't enlightened, uh, and and that wasn't my experience. It wasn't. It's not the experience of people I know. You know, Catholic or secular. That you know, most people care deeply about their home lives and understand that actually, if they're miserable in their home life, they're they're probably miserable. Um, you know, and that spreads throughout their lives, right? And whereas you can kind of cap, cap, uh, compartmentalize your job a little bit if you have like this vibrant um, interior life of prayer or home life and family. And then actually the, the way that we've emphasized our public life, you know, to the detriment of our private lives, it's really the, the inverse of what ought to be happening. You know, we all know that that anything good in life comes from it being rooted in first of all, aren't that interior life and suddenly in, in the home. It's actually a movement into the public life where things become in a way less crucial, although, you know, our public lives are important too. Right. Um, but you're going to become bifurcated at some point if you're not, you know, giving the full attention to or the giving the right, the right attention to in the right ways to the right thing. Um, and so I, th- I think we just wanted to show, have put something out into the world that portrayed this vital, universal, universally desired thing home and really explored that and showed how why it's important it's not just important because we want to impress other people or i want to you know have the best house on the block or you know these things are self-referential but rather the home can be a signpost towards heaven you know the place where we just abide where we belong where we're known where there's true intimacy where we're not valued for our function or utility but Mm -hmm. actually valued for our personhood and that actually is, you know, an incredibly life-giving, vital piece of, of, um, of humanity um, that we've neglected for a long time. And you see people wanting it back again. You know, people are having kitchen gardens and there's so it's this return to like craft and domesticity and all these things. So there's some desire for all of that. But there, I'd, we wanted to create a thread that wove all those things together and spoke to the why. Why are we longing for these things? Why are they important? And why is this good? Yeah, and and I think that that's I think that's a really important thing to do because it's you know one one of the criticisms that people who are not of Christian faith tend to lob at Christians or even you know just the conservatives maybe is that we're just defined by what we hate 
and we're just defined by what we're against. Our Christians are just against, they're just against abortion. They're just against gay marriage. They're just against people being happy and enjoying their life. And it's like, well, you can look at it that way, but it, there, there's actually something that we're for behind that. And, you know, there, there's this, there's this thread in, in, you know, certainly in Christian uh, philosophy and Christian theology, but it, it goes further back that the, the smallest, um, the smallest unit, the, the most basic unit to civilization is the family, right? And where does the family live? They live in the home. And if you want, if you want to have a family that's at least on the right foot and granted family is a complicated thing and it's not as simple as just having like a lovely home and, and eating meal around the, meals around the table but that's gonna go a long way because it's it's you know i like like i've said before i'm a um, i'm a professional counselor and and one thing that i often find <clears throat> with my clients when i ask them like, what is your home life like? Oh, well, it's, it's chaotic. And, and the home itself is, you know, I ask them to describe like their living room, their bedroom, their kitchen, it's chaotic. And so what I try to get them to do is I, I, I challenge them to pick one room in the house, or if that's too much, one corner of a room. Just, and again, going back to Jordan Peterson, full circle, make your bed, clean your room. Like, there's something in that, and it's it's not just the accomplishment aspect of it, but there's also this this deeper um, subconscious element of of bringing order to your life, and 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 and, and yeah, it's it's just it's hard to put into words. I think that you put it into better words than I can do. Um, and and looking through the book. Uh, it looks like you keep a lovely home. Um, I'm certainly envious of uh, I'm certainly envious of the of the pizza oven, um, without a doubt. I there were a few pictures in there that I was quite envious that I could not participate in directly. Um, there were much more lovely homes than mine, but I certainly cleaned up extra that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it you know it. Um, it was, it, I, I really did love theology of home. It was, it was awesome to, it was awesome to see put into words something that a lot of people say is important, but not a lot of people put the time into actually um, expressing and going into. So I think that, it, I think that it served a really vital purpose. And I hope that that's a project that you and Carrie are going to continue. Uh, sounds like you are, you got another book coming on the way. Um, so like I said, I, there was a whole lot more in, in Awake Not Woke that I wanted to go into. Um, it's an excellent book. I, I can't applaud you enough. Um, I first became aware of it when I was listening to the Moral Imagination podcast. Shout out to Michael Matheson Miller. Excellent show. Um, and I thought, well, that sounds like an interesting episode title. And it was just no turning back after that. I thought it was, it was a gripping read. And um, I, I, I loved every minute that I spent reading it. So I want to give you uh, I want to give you the last word. Um, any closing thoughts? Anything that you want to? Anything that you want to share or say? 
Well, thank you so much. I mean, I love that you came to it through Michael's podcast. He actually was, a, he was with Carrie and I at Steuben, or Carrie me at Steubenville that many years ago. So he's an old dear friend of mine. And I think he's an excellent, excellent uh, podcast host, great conversationalist and incredibly well-read and smart. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I think that the only thing that I would, I guess, would leave people with, we've had such a good conversation and I, and I attribute that to you. You were such a good uh, conversationalist yourself. Um, but just that, I think that this is a bizarre time. And the thing I hear most from people is that they sense that something isn't quite right and they don't know how to put their finger on it. They don't understand, you know, why racial justice entails, you know, sexist sort of sexual freedom and, 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 and why there's um, this effort to silence and it seems like it goes in one direction. All these things that maybe aren't seeming right. Um, and so I think that I really wrote the book I don't, I, I'm hopeful to that some people maybe will have their minds changed in particular ways. And I've heard a bit of that. Um, but mostly I'm hearing from people who just weren't, you know, very political and either way um, and, and seeing that there's something far more than politics happening. And I do think that this is fundamentally a spiritual battle um, that, that at its core, um, but it's operating on, you know, really corroding sort of the nature of the human person and our, and our ability to be friends. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the erosion of friendship is one of the, the saddest parts of all of this, um, to my mind. So, um, but on a hopeful note, I think it's, I think that people are, it's eminently winnable, <laughs> if you want to put it in that to those sorts of types of win, win loss terms, but um, I think this ideology has to be defeated. And one of the things I say oftentimes is that we should remember that, you know, there's a lot of people deceived by it and a lot of people that are well-intentioned and are seeking the good and seeking love and are harmed, harmed and wounded and wanting to be whole. Um, and so we, we, we have to fight it with courage, but also with a great deal of compassion um, and understanding because it's, it's an ideology that we want to conquer. Not, it's not individuals we want to conquer. Um, we want that, you know, we, we want all of us to come out on the other side of this and be able to be friends. So, <laughs> so it's a tricky thing to approach, but I think we can do it. I think we can. And I think that, I think that books like yours are a good step in the right direction. Um, it, it's a great bridge builder. And, um, and I hope that, I hope that it's a line of scholarship that you will continue to pursue because you have a great grip on it. Uh, you have a great voice, um, and and I think that there's still a lot more to be said. So, Miss Maring, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, it's been a privilege of mine to speak with you, and maybe I can have you on some other time to talk more about theology at home. Sounds great. Right, thanks, thanks a lot, Jamie.